Hello. Hello. This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And today we've got an excellent episode. Yeah, we always do. Yeah, for we, sure. We, it's an eclectic <laughs> one today. A couple different things. We're actually coming live from a different studio. We're, yeah. we're at the fourth we're podcast the, the, studio. Yeah, the latest podcast studio, if you can. Uh, it's probably, you know, it's your podcast studio, so I don't want to say it's anything. the worst. It is the worst it, podcast the worst. studio I've ever been in. <laughs> Uh, we're in a, the basement of a teardown house, um, yeah. uh, it's low ceilings, low ceilings, uh, super hot cause the furnace doesn't work. Old carpet, cat hair. Smells like cat. Uh, it's the worst. Hotter than hell. Yeah. Hotter than hell in here. Yeah. And very tired actually. Yeah. It I'm, feels. It I'm just, exhausted I, just being in here. It, I'm I was feeling dra- great <laughs> until we got in the basement. I was going to say, it's a draining it's, it this is, sucks the air out of here. We got to keep the the energy up in yeah, this episode. We are. We are. We're gonna we're gonna do our best here. We're gonna push through, but the yeah, and I mean, I, I'm I'm not living like this on purpose. It's it's uh, this we're, is what we're, success looks like. We're we're waiting on permits, and uh, the reality is is uh, I've I've moved in, but we're it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough condition. Yeah, this basement. Yeah, it's a with a with a good imagination. This is going to be an amazing space. Uh, all right. Anyways, we're uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit. We've we've had so many questions, and we appreciate all the questions about the uh, stats and what's happening in the market. And the reality is, is we we took last week off um, mostly because everybody takes the long weekend off, and uh, a lot of people go away with their families uh, before the kids get back to school and that sort of thing. So yeah, and it basically it felt like uh, real estate in Vancouver had, had basically shut down in the yeah. last couple of weeks there of August. Just uh, Kathy Tomlinson still talking about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically it's, it felt like real estate shut down for the last two weeks of August, uh, almost entirely. Uh, the office was dead. Right. Everybody was away. The people that were still around talking were, were taking the wait and see approach, uh, yeah. by and large. And, um, you know, we thought we could, we could put out an episode, but, uh, why don't we just do like everybody else and, uh, follow the herd and wait and see. And, right. um, the big news is first week of September here, I think we're still going to have to wait and see for the most part, but, uh, well, we had the, the September stats were, were the August stats, re- or sorry, the August stats were released. And, uh, basically what we're seeing is, is that there has been an overall slowdown in, in sales yeah. activity for sure. Sales volume. However, uh, obviously that hasn't, uh, influenced prices and, and at the end of the day, sales volume changes first, right? You see, and then you see a bit of a standoff between buyers and sellers. And Which is definitely, I think where we're at right now. There are certain areas. Are, are seem to be a bit slower than others, and that goes by not only area but also by price band. So maybe just a couple of general comments on on where we are seeing activity, and then also where we're we're not. Yeah, I mean, there's a few key areas that that we uh, work in that that seem to be quite active, and it it makes a lot of sense. It's really in single family homes. It's 
the price band, especially in East Vancouver, of uh, right. basically the entry level price band, uh, yep. we're seeing between a million and and one point two five. I think the sales ratio for August was still up at seventy percent, and that's holding true on the west side as well, right? It seems you know I, I hate to kind of use a blanket statement for the entire market, but for Vancouver proper. In, in attached and detached, we are seeing a lot of a lot of activity still in the entry level price points of each market. Yeah, which makes sense because it, I think the people that were active in August were end users, people looking, or most active, I should say, are people that were looking for places to live. Uh, a lot of uh, those people had been uh, on the market prior to the tax uh, being announced in sure. July, uh, had lost out. I mean, I was I just mentioned to you in a multiple offer situation in which uh, it got blown out of the water, it felt like back in February times, and the, the reasoning... Uh, of the person that uh, that did so is they lost they'd lost eight eight nine properties over the last three months and they were just absolutely sick of it so they just went in guns blazing um, right. but you know that's a holdover from from I think the market the pre August market for sure yep um, and we've got a we've got a one bedroom in Olympic Village right now where we're getting a ton of calls yeah, on tons. It. so it's uh, it just really depends which price band you're in right now and um, there are still very active markets in Vancouver the stats and maybe just a general general thoughts on the stats I mean were were you expecting them to be different were you expecting volume to be down more than than it actually was no I mean the real estate board stats represent what I was expecting in large part because it did feel like there was a standoff right that mm-hmm. um, activity was way down that was obvious but it it's not like uh, buyers or sellers have caved. Um, so right. the the capital appreciation sort of aspect in August was hovered around even, um, which which was what I expected. I mean, the the thing that I found more interesting here is the questioning of the legitimacy of the stats uh, more generally. I there mean, seems to be a lot of that going on right now in the media, and and I think it's a it's actually an interesting conversation, right? Because for sure. it's it's the real estate board cannot catch a break though. No, I know. And you know what, to be, to be fair to the real estate board of greater Vancouver there, it's, it's really hard to collect this data because you've got, uh, what, almost 13,000 realtors in the lower mainland and, uh, everybody's collecting sales data, right? So, so when, when do people report, when do realtors get the paperwork into the office? When does the office get the, the paperwork to the board? And does it make by the end of the time by when the deadline, yeah, by, the so deadline how, by how they're collecting the stats? Yeah. And there's lots of interesting questions just around, um, you know, the samples that they're actually pulling and how reflective they are about a given period in time, right? It can be misleading to say August when we are looking at maybe up until maybe a week before the end of August is when they're actually collecting the, the sale, yeah. s- sales samples. And then, right? you know, the people are saying, well, benchmark prices, uh, that's not indicative. Uh, we should be doing average prices and, and the debates sort of rage. I mean, average prices to me, uh, the obvious point is that uh, if if luxury homes are way down, you know they they either can pull the the average price right. point way up or push it way down. Right. Um, so I don't think that's a, a, a much better indicator. So perhaps median. I think a lot of people look for median. Uh, yeah, but I mean the 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 larger thing in reading all the you know there was a, a guy out of Toronto or out of Ontario that had a prominent place in an article on uh, in the last Saturday's Vancouver Sun talking about how the stats were um, wildly off and the thing that just kept on ringing in my mind was 
you know, stats are a good are are definitely part of the picture. But if you're actually in the market and looking to buy, I mean, you're looking at the most recent sales, and um, you know, if nothing, sure. and 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 the active listing. So you're looking at you're not using the stats as sort of a as as the only indicator of what type of price point you're going in at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a, the broader trends. The stats are useful for pointing to broader trends that kind of people are feeling as well. Right. But um, you know, it's not the only. It's not like uh, the real estate board stats are the end all be all that everybody's uh, right. kind of treating it as right now. And that's and that's kind of where we're at right now with just uh, with you know new information in the market and and the market shifting. Obviously, where it's going, it's it's uh, nobody's you know nobody's got the crystal ball. But uh, at the same time, it's 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 something that you kind of have to pull back. I mean, when Hong Kong, when there was actually. It, when when prices started to be if impacted, it, it took a lot. It took a very long time. It took a year. It took a year and a half, right? Um, obviously, in London, central London, right now, we did see sales volume change around the Brexit vote, um, but that doesn't mean that overnight we start to see prices uh, collapsing and the end of the world or anything along those lines. You know, but at the end of the day, it's it is very much early times. It's early days um, in terms of uh, you know any kind of shift in the market. Sales volume is is definitely down. Uh, but you know what? It's September now. People have put the kids back at school and they're focused on real estate again. And I got to say on Monday, or not on Monday, sorry, on Tuesday after the long weekend, yeah. uh, it felt to me like it, it was almost busy. I don't know if it was just in in my my day-to-day activities, but this week for me has been busy with calls from other agents to show show properties yep. and uh, and calls from sellers, calls from buyers. And it, it does seem have a business like, as usual. Kind well, of feel. it's it does have a business as usual kind of feel. And I don't know if other agents are are feel, if some people I've been talking to seem really busy. Other people not so much. Yeah. So it just really depends, I think, and maybe it has to do with your business cycle as well in terms of who you have as buyers and sellers in your client base. And well, it, take this as a sign, if you will. But I was in uh, the Cardero Display Center, a new a new Boza right. building going in in Coal Harbor. Um, and I think there was some headlines about them selling out within a week. Yep. And that was, I mean, first of all, uh, very, very nice, uh, nice, uh, extraordinarily nice finishings. That, that building's going to be amazing. Price per square foot was kind of through the stratosphere. What was, uh, generally speaking, what was the price per square foot? You know foot? what? You could get small two bed, one baths for about one, about a million bucks. Okay. Um, but they were like 700 and. 40 square feet maybe. Um, but the last one I was in with a client looking at a two bed, uh, a larger two bed um, that had water views of the of the harbor, of mm-hmm. Coal Harbor. And uh, it worked out to uh, basically, it was like ninth floor or 12th floor or something. Not, not really all that high. It was one of the few they had left and it worked out to $1,900 a square foot. First of all, it's a great location. And yeah. uh, and Boza does good work. And when they do yeah, high-end finishes, the, it's it's usually done and it's, done well. Yeah, it was exceedingly nice. I think a lot of people were comparing it to Trump. And Trump was, was astronomical on a price per square foot, right? And I think a lot of people saw better value at Cardero than at Trump. Is that sure. fair to say? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, and when I was through, this was the other point I was going to make is I, I, you know, I was talking um, with somebody over there and I said, what's the, what's the level of foreign interest? And uh, this was before they started selling. And uh, the, the response I got was, oh, no, it hasn't impacted us at all. And I was thinking, yeah, well, we'll wait and see. 
and then they sold out in a week. So, um, you know, all local buyers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, who, who knows, but Coal Harbor is, uh, is an attractive area, um, for foreign buyers. uh, And, uh, and that was, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe that was a one-off, but uh, we'll see. We'll yeah, see. For sure. Time will tell. Um, we did have a quick question uh, that we wanted to kind of answer um, from a listener uh, named Henry. Uh, Henry kind of was, was, I don't know if it was a question as much as he was saying, you know, can you guys point out some of the things to look for in a good mortgage helper for people that are looking in the detached market, but they do need that that rental income from from the basement. Yeah. Um, so we'll just highlight a couple things here. So this, these are things to look for if you're looking for a house in East Vancouver or the West side and you do need the help from a mortgage helper, um, which is a suite, a separate suite, um, and you can rent out. And I think the part of the, the issue with a mortgage helper is right. That obviously if it's going to be your home, you know, you go, you look at the space you're going to be living in and you focus on that space. Right. Um, you know, often times you don't even look at the more you don't yeah. even look at the basement uh and uh you know that's all uh, can be to uh, your own detriment so we'll just highlight some points here that are uh, that are going to be useful and there's two things to kind of consider here one is if there's a suite already and and two if there's an unfinished basement where you're planning on actually having a contractor come in and and build a suite for you mm-hmm. right yeah so um obviously the first one is a separate entrance. Yeah. You, you need to have a separate entrance to have a suite. I guess you don't, well, technically, if you want it to be an authorized suite, you do. Um, but, you know, you have to keep in mind, do you want to share the same door as your tenants? Yeah, not, and security. Likely, right? I mean, and not only do you want to, will your tenant want to? I mean, that's uh, right. That's going to turn a lot of people off for sure. So separate entrance is key. A lot of people looking at uh, houses in Vancouver are surprised, especially if it's an old timer about ceiling height. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm sitting in it you're, and you're, I'm surprised. You're almost touching your head on the ceiling and, and you're sitting, sitting down, down. <laughs> <laughs> and you're super hot and it's disgusting. And, it, that? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm falling it's asleep. Like a cold day and I'm just <laughs> dripping with sweat. Uh, so, okay. So we've got, uh, we, you need to have Good ceiling height, and what does that look like for a suite? So, typically six, six, six and a half feet in a in a suite for a basement suite is is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, anything higher than that is 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 pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, and there are ways around it. Obviously, you can dig out if you are rebuilding the suite. You can dig out the basement. Um, second uh, consideration. Third. Oh, third consideration. Right. Looking for designated space. If, so this is if there's no suite already. You need to make sure that actually you have the space to do the things you want to do, like adding a kitchen, a proper living room, a bathroom. And while you're looking at this at at these areas, you need to keep in mind things like plumbing. I mean, you don't want to have to move plumbing. You want to be cost effective. For sure. Um, and also things like electrical panels, like, you know, um, where, where they are, are they accessible? Um, so there's a lot of questions like that, but you, you, you need to make sure that, that with the space that you have, that you can actually properly have a, a livable floor plan. Yeah. Another consideration is, uh, soundproofing, you know, uh, obviously a lot of the homes in Vancouver are, are old, 
uh, older homes and and uh, sound trans- transfers quite easily. Right. So uh, one of the things you're going to want to do is is uh, you know get get your realtor or somebody you're you're looking at the house with potentially to to go upstairs and and walk around and and see if there's um uh, see what type of noise transfer. Uh, Can you hear people talking clear as day? I mean, some of these old houses, you think about um, some of the houses built in the 40s or 40s, 50s. I lived in a house that was built in the 40s where it was almost like there was, uh, it was the only dividing material between the basement and the upstairs was paper. Yeah. It, it was just like you could hear everything. And one of the ways we actually fixed that was going over top of the existing flooring with another flooring system and putting a, a soundproofing in between. Right. Um, and that actually really helped uh, surprisingly because our contractor didn't think it would. You do want to think about that. And and that's another thing when you're actually getting a tenant. I mean, if, if they have a young child or if you have kids, you want to think about that transfer between, you know, of, of a kid running around upstairs or also if some a, a baby crying in the basement uh, these are things you need to consider for yeah, sure yeah on a day to day on a day to day basis these are going to be the things that give you headaches for sure if there's not a suite downstairs in the basement already um, think about uh, where the the plumbing is and think about where the drainage is for the toilet as well because what what I've seen in the past and if you go into a lot of suites in Vancouver you'll see this where floors are built up in different areas mm-hmm. and it's often in the bathroom like the bathroom you'll have to step up a foot or so uh, just to get into it and it it might only be kind of lower lower uh, headspace as well and this is often because they had to, to build it up build it up to make sure that there's proper gravity for for the toilet right unless you were we're using a grinder toilet or or um you know a a different a different toilet but if you want to have kind of a more conventional toilet which is the best system out there um chances are you want to have you want to be able to work with the existing plumbing and you know totally an aside here but if you want to get a sense of uh, the type of uh, podcast studio imagine this upstairs in this in Adam's new house okay. <laughs> there's a toilet in the kitchen <laughs> the former owner was a bad cook <laughs> <laughs> Easy access. <laughs> um, okay, so so you know, be realistic about rents. I think that's that's one for um, sure. Uh, so, natural light, just as an aside, uh, is is key a key, is key factor as well. You know, you want to make sure that it doesn't feel the more it feels like a basement, the tougher uh, time it's it is to it, to rent. It is to rent. Yeah. And you know, we've talked in the past about the types of rents you get on a price per square foot in. in in certain areas, it's not it's not as easy for basement suites. Obviously, most people want to live above ground. Most people want to live in in condos, so they're willing to pay a premium to live sure. there. Um, you know, depending on how nice the basement suite is, uh, you need to factor in that. You know, it's it's going to be hard to get premium rent for a basement suite, um, but you're still going to be able to get excellent rent. The more livable and the better it presents, and the less it feels like it is underground and more of a bunker, right? The last thing I'll point out, and I mean, you might have a couple others, Matt, but heating, um, heating is often, often houses are on one thermostat and insulation downstairs, depending on if it was unfinished or not, or or depending on how uh, poorly or effectively the suite was built. And what you, what you'll find is that basements are often really cold when the upstairs of the house is, is moderate or warm. Um, so think about that. Think about the fact that you're, you're, your tenant might 
be freezing cold while you're fine upstairs and you might be roasting or, hot yeah, you well, might be boiling, yeah. while your tenant is comfortable. So, so, you know, it's just something to consider. Yeah. Now to switch gears a bit, I mean, it's a, it's actually a nice bookend to, to this episode in that we're about a month out from, uh, the foreign buyers tax, uh, being imposed. And, right. uh, we're talking about, uh, August, uh, the August market and, and kind of, uh, what we're seeing the first week here in September. And, uh, we decided we'd have one last critical discussion about the tax with Barry Appleton. Uh, Adam, maybe you can tell us a little bit. Barry is a managing partner at Appleton and Associates. Um, it's a, it's a law group that's, um, international lawyers in Toronto and Washington. Yeah. He was kind of really famous right after the tax came in, right? Well, he wrote an article, um, called BC just violated NAFTA with its foreign policy tax and we can all pay for it. Right. Um, and that was in the Financial Post, and it got a ton of traction. So it was it was kind of shared a ton on Facebook, and it was uh, a, it was a huge article in the Post. Yeah. So without further ado, here is Barry Appleton, managing partner with Appleton and Associates. Enjoy, guys. Okay, so I'm here with Barry Appleton, international lawyer and managing partner of Appleton Associates International Lawyers, um, with offices in Toronto and Washington, D.C. How you doing, Barry? Great to be here. Uh, so, Barry, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm an international lawyer. I'm an expert about the, the NAFTA uh, and other international trade agreements. Uh, I've been working in the area exclusively for more than uh, 20 years. I've written a number of books about uh, the NAFTA, and I'm the co-chair of the American Bar Association's International Treaty Working Group. Okay, great. So you recently wrote a piece that was um, featured in the Financial Post and in um, several other uh, media publications, arguing that the BC's 15% foreign buyer tax is in clear violation of uh, NAFTA agreement as well as some other international trade agreements. Um, what do you see as kind of the main problem with the tax? Well, the, uh, the BC tax is discriminatory. And, and that, from the context of international trade, what that means is it treats one class of purchasers better than another. Those that don't have to pay, those are Canadian citizens, they're treated better than those who do have to pay, and those are non-Canadian citizens. And under um, international trade treaties, of which Canada has a, quite a large number, um, that's called national treatment. National treatment is you have to treat the foreign party as favorably as you treat the best-treated local party. And so by creating a tax based on citizenship, the B.C. government has violated uh, treaties like the NAFTA and 27 other treaties, including the Canada-China Treaty that just came into force in 2014. That's pretty big all at one time. Is there any kind of exemptions from any of these agreements when it comes to housing? Well, uh First of all, every agreement has its own set of exceptions. And so you have to talk about each agreement separately when you want to deal with it. But the easy part here is all of these agreements treat residential housing as an investment that's protected. And none of them have an an exception in them that would permit a taxation measure like this to take place. Some agreements will have ownership restrictions. That is, if BC passed a law that said foreigners cannot buy, there could be certain types of um, ways that that would be permitted depending on the treaty. 
Um, and, but the fact of the matter is, for the policy that was passed right now, it's in clear violation of each of the 28 treaties, and there are no exceptions or reservations, even though those exceptions or reservations might be enforced to allow for different types of taxes in other places. Like, for example, in Hawaii or in Arizona or in Florida, they have differential taxes because they were exempted and reserved into the NAFTA when it came into force on January 1, 1994. Why would the government put in place a tax that's so clearly in breach of, of current trade agreements? Oh, I, I can't tell you. I can tell <laughs> you that um, many years ago I, I'd been an advisor to a number of governments, uh, provincial governments in Canada. I, I worked for the government of Ontario and was an advisor to their cabinet committee when the NAFTA came in. I later at some point was an advisor to the trade minister and then to the premier of British Columbia. And at those times, I can tell you that all the governments were very focused on checking their laws for consistency with international trade and international laws. BC is one of the most trade-sensitive provinces in Canada because of softwood lumber and fisheries and other issues. So traditionally, BC would be have a very robust process. I think this process wasn't very carefully thought out, and I don't think they could have applied the same type of process that certainly was around when I was uh, involved giving this type of advice, because there is no exception to get yourself out of this. Um, and it's created such tremendous commercial uh, uncertainty, and the add-on effects of this type of policy are bad, and the international effect it has on Canada's reputation as a home for a safe home for foreign investments also bad. So the the short answer is there there was no there, there was no way that they could have easily addressed this by way of housing. But in fact, I don't think this policy really deals with housing in any event, really, because it doesn't do anything about making more rentals available, doesn't do anything about affordability, and it doesn't do anything about money laundering. It's just basically a money grab from the, the province which is going to have the unfortunate effect that people who are affected will be able to use these international treaties, um, many, many of them depending on the treaty again, like the NAFTA. If you're covered by the NAFTA, you have a way of being able to get your money back, and the province is going to have to pay that money back when the feds ask them to pay them back for paying a NAFTA claim or whatever else it's going to be. So do you think, so in, in touching on some of the fallout here, do you think that people, that foreigners are actually going to be challenging this tax? Well, if the foreigners want their money back, they're going to have to. Um, the, so for example, the average house price in, in Vancouver is $1.5 million. Uh, now a foreign citizen is going to have the unfortunate situation of having to pay an extra $225,000 for a house that, that his or her Canadian neighbor doesn't have to pay that for. So if they want that back, and by the way, for many people, the house is going to be more, and the tax is going to be more. If they want that back, they're going to have to bring an after claim. They're going to have to basically bring what's called a mass claim. That is that a number of claims are going to have to be brought together in order to make it cost-effective to be able to deal with this and have it heard at one big hearing. In addition, the NAFTA, or the, the state government. So, for example, under the China Treaty, a Chinese buyer can't get that type of reimbursement personally. They'd have to go back to their government, and the government can do it. Only, for example, Americans or Mexicans who are covered by the NAFTA get that benefit, or other treaties. There are 28 treaties involved here. You have to look at the particular treaty. But 
I think the government is going to have cases against it. I think the government's going to have to pay this money back. I think the government's not going to be happy that they came up with such a rash and short-sighted policy. And it's really affected a lot of people here in British Columbia who are not foreign buyers, but are in industries affected, in the building trades, in the real estate services. They're all going to have their predictability and their lives affected by what I think is just a very silly public policy outcome that didn't address the real problems and created new ones. Okay. And so in speaking about some of these potential lawsuits, um, what does that kind of timeline look like? And uh, the costs, I would imagine that there would be some pretty uh, severe costs associated with something along those lines. Um, Is that something that would potentially have to be covered as well by the federal government, the Canadian federal government? Well, okay, so the, the, let's talk about the timelines. Each of the treaties has its own waiting period, but the, we'll use the NAFTA as an example. NAFTA says that you can't bring your claim until six months after the harms occurred. You can bring a notification to let them know that, but you can't formally start your claim. So, there's, so these claims won't start to see the light of day until sometime in 2017. That's the first step, because you have to deal with the waiting period. Right. And you have to wait for someone to have suffered the loss, which is very unfortunate first. Second of all, um, the government will be responsible, um, if the claimants are successful, to repay the amount of money that they would have had, have to pay in this discriminatory tax, pay for the legal costs that are associated with it, the cost of the tribunal, all the costs that go with it, and pay them interest at a commercial reasonable rate. So their best bet at getting this money back, and it's an awful lot of money for uh, on each property when I look at it, um, would be to be able to bring this type of an action. Um, because otherwise, they don't really have a remedy. And that may have been why the government decided to do this. The other option, of course, is there are real questions as to if whether this is even constitutional. There are some serious questions on that. And so that may also be a remedy that would be uh, available to those who are affected by it. Builders, for example. You may have many builders who um, have had people with a, a, a pre-sale. They may have had this done for a year or two. All of a sudden, the foreign buyers uh, might walk away because the increase in the, the tax may be just too much for them. That would be unfortunate. There's going to be a lot of litigation domestically about that. They may very well have a right constitutionally in our courts in addition to any international claims that might be available as well. Is there a, is there a way that they could have unrolled this tax uh, in a way that was more effective, potentially, in your thoughts? Oh, sure, of course they could have. In fact, they probably picked the least effective uh, way possible, but it may, have been, it may have been more politically desirous for them to have a strong action rather than to have something that was well thought out. I mean, most policies like this aren't done in four days. Right. This was announced, uh, and then all of a sudden the legislature was recalled, passed, and came into force on August the 2nd. I mean, what type of consultation? Where, where was the public? Where, where, did the government, where were they able to bring this proposal and get input from people in the real estate industry that would know about it, or from the legal side, or from the international side? It's not surprising that they made some mistakes. There were clearly all types of policies available. There are policies that could have been available to deal with the issue of rental availability. 
they didn't do it. There are policies that are available that could have dealt with the issue of affordability. They didn't do that either. So you have to think about fundamentally, you know, what was the objective? Well, the objective clearly amongst others was to have a clear political statement. They had a clear political statement that seems to be popular, but it may not be legal and it certainly is very unfair. Right, right. So all eyes are on Toronto as well, because it's obviously one of the hot housing markets uh, in Canada. Do you think that Ontario will follow suit? Um, any kind of rumblings that you're aware of at this point? Well, I, I, I've had a lot of conversations in Toronto about this, um, because the, the number of construction jobs and construction-related jobs is a very important part of the, the economy in the greater Toronto area. Um, I think that, uh, that that the government of Ontario uh, would be very careful to try to create a policy that might not be offside international trade obligations. I think that was the one thing that that really caught people by surprise here, um, and they might be much more focused on being able to find a policy that would focus on, you know, rental availability. That might focus on affordability. And if people are worried about money laundering, you know, we have federal laws that deal with that. Um, so I, I think what you're looking at is a solution that needs three levels of government, needs broad consultation. That uh, So if Ontario was to do anything, my sense is that they will not make the BC mistake of not consulting and not talking to people. I think instead they are probably pretty committed to watching and then to listening and I think that will make better public policy for Ontario than the unfortunate public policy that's taking place here in British Columbia. Perfect. But who knows? <laughs> Perfect. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time, Barry. Maybe we'll leave it there. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. And how can people uh, reach um, Appleton Associates International Lawyers? Um, our website is www.appletonlaw.com. And they can feel free to email me at uh, bappleton at appletonlaw.com. Um, I get questions all the time from people about this tax, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy to respond as much as I can. Perfect. Well, thank you again. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks, our discussion uh, about the foreign buyers tax and NAFTA with Barry Appleton. A super interesting, uh, super interesting conversation. I'd, I'd get Adam's take here, but uh, looks like he's half asleep. Is there a gas leak in here? <laughs> I can't. This, this basement is so hot. It, it, it had we, nothing to do with Barry Appleton. No, no. It, very interesting, uh, very interesting interview. And I'm actually, I'm super glad we added Barry on because... Uh, he seems to be the guy to talk to about, uh, I mean, he's obviously done a lot of work in Washington. He's done, he's worked in various, with various international trade agreements. So. Yeah, he's the authority on the subject. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, I'm just thinking maybe we'll move this, uh, the podcast studio up to your kitchen from now on. <laughs> Right next to the bathroom. <laughs> um, and uh, if you enjoy the podcast, the biggest comp- compliment that you can give us is uh, reviewing us on iTunes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, again, Matt, how can people reach you? Yeah, you can reach me uh, at 778-847-2854 or at matt at scalinarealestate.com. Or and Adam? You, or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at scalinarealestate.com. Yeah, we love to hear from you guys and... Uh, Oh, the, the nonpartisan line. Oh, info. right. 
info info at com, And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. And please do, uh, again, join our Facebook uh, group where the conversations are thriving. And uh, we'll be back next week. Absolutely. Have a good week, guys. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 